How's it, peeps? It's good to see you. Um, and before we actually continue with this and wrap up this series, which has been brilliant, um, just wanted to give you guys an update from our side, from Laura and I. Um, but for it to happen, I have to disrobe. <laughs> so this T-shirt reads, my jokes are now officially dad jokes. Yeah. So my wife, my wife, Laura, is pregnant, um, 18 weeks now, and so that's a wonderful thing. How she told me was less wonderful. Uh, <laughs> early one morning, you know how it goes, she gets up and she says, the test came back, I'm positive for COVID, and I'm positive for pregnancy. I was like, yay? Is this half yay? Um, so my wife was such a trooper because she went through having COVID but not taking any hardcore painkillers because you can't when you're pregos. So Laura machined through and obviously everyone keeps asking, what are you taking for COVID? And we keep having this amnesia, like whatever the doctor prescribed, I have no idea. Because we can't <laughs> give away the fact that Laura is not taking any drugs because people will become pretty suspicious about it. So Laura soldiered through that. And um, was pretty sick. The first trimester, as many of the ladies might know, uh, heavily tired, heavily nauseous. And so I just called pregnancy the condition that she's suffering from, her present condition. Uh, and the condition taught me that I have an issue with humanity. And the issue is with this term, morning sickness. Lies straight from the father of lies. Morning, afternoon, evening sickness. It should be called just the sickness of pregnancy. I even got nauseous. I had sympathy symptoms. It's God's way of enforcing empathy when your wife is pregnant. Um, so that was Laura's condition that she was suffering from with her morning sickness. And with this whole nausea thing, when Laura's feeling particularly horrendous, she would say, it's because of baby James. So whenever she's feeling sick, that can't be her baby. That's my baby. <laughs> That's making her feel particularly sick. So baby James causing all the issues. Baby Laura, not so much. Um, so she's had such a great dose of that. The baby's starting to hear inside the stomach. If you've ever put your head on someone's stomach, it's quite loud what's going on inside there. So I think there's some hardcore heavy metal going on there for that baby inside of that womb. Yeah, yeah, just like me. Uh, but um, also, when the baby actually can hear my voice, she's apprehensive law about that. Because I told her when the baby can hear, um, don't worry about this countdown. This countdown is not going to serve you well. <laughs> um, um, when the baby can actually hear my voice, I said to Laura, I'm going to start preaching <laughs> to the baby. So Laura is feeling nervous because that means a double dose of me preaching at home. So you can pray for Laura about that. If you want to congratulate her, she's not in upstairs like she usually is. She's actually down in the front. Um, so we have a little baby now that is due at the end of January 2023. Yeah. So I could transition into my preach uh, from that because not all of that is irrelevant to the preach. Um, but I would rather just pray um, and then let's get into the sermon today. Um, Father, we just thank you for the fact that all life comes from you. We want to thank you that you are the giver of life. You're the creator. 
but you're also the one who gives us new life. You're also the God of rebirth. You're also the God that makes us new. And so today, Lord, our hearts are in need of being made new. Our minds are in need of being made new. Lord, would you do a new thing among us today? Lord, would today not just be another Sunday, but Lord, would you do something fresh, something new, and something of your Holy Spirit amongst us? As we look at your word, we want to be changed, and we want to see you for who you are. And so, Lord, would you help us? Would you take the scales off of our eyes and help our hearts to see the truth that you have for us? For we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, I've got to preach this sermon with this shirt on. So that's good. Um, we've been taking a look at how we made in God's image, male and female. God created us. It's been a great series. And obviously, we have to wrap up the series looking at male and female coming together in romantic relationship. And so we're going to be taking a look at singleness, sex, and marriage. And what we're going to find is that there is a word of hope that Jesus has for you no matter where you find yourself today as you are listening. No matter what stage of life you're in and no matter what convicts you today, there is hope for you in Jesus. And we underestimate the, as we get to point three, we'll see this, that we underestimate the degree to which our expectation of the future shapes our present. And so Christian hope is not similar to how we use the word hope in English. In English, we say, I hope something will happen, but that we're not actually sure, but we're just hoping for the best. In Christianity and in the Bible, hope is a sure expectation of what God will do in the future that shapes our present. And that sure expectation is Jesus is returning. He's going to make all things new. He's going to redeem everything. He's going to make a new heaven, a new earth. And actually, as you look at that teaching, Everything in our present is shaped by that hope, including singleness, marriage, and sex. And so that's where we're going to be headed. We're going to take a look at how God designed things, which is not how the world defines it. A lot of the series we've been saying, this is how God designed it, very different to what we see in the world. So we're going to be taking a look at heading number one, a countercultural view of marriage and singleness, and a countercultural view, secondly, of sex. This sermon is rated 13 and parental guidance is advised for younger viewers. And heading number three, hope for singles, marriage, and sex. So heading number one, let's take a look at the countercultural view that God has of singleness and marriage. We're going to be camping a lot in 1 Corinthians 7 and 6. If you want to turn there and you want to flip between these verses, go for it. 1 Corinthians 7 from verse 24, Paul says this. This is about singleness. So brothers... In whatever condition each was called, let them remain with God. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek to marry. But if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. <laughs> Firstly, how funny is this verse? <laughs> God says, if you marry, you'll have trouble. This is just a Bible fact for you. We know that when the ring comes on your finger, your life does, is not now free of problems. Um, but some things in you well to the surface, and you realize, I'm the one who has a lot of trouble. And marriage has a way of revealing ourselves, and it will be trouble for you. Um, and so there's a Bible fact if you didn't know that. Um, and this countercultural view of singleness is where we're going to be taking a look at. Paul says this, it's a perfectly legitimate option for you not to seek to be married at all. And then he says this in 1 Corinthians 7.32. He says, I want you to be free from anxieties. 
The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man, this is a true fact, is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. So he's saying it's a full-time job to please your spouse. How many of you know that's a fact? This is a thing that will consume you and will occupy you. And in fact, God would love you if you are married to be occupied by this. But if we read between the lines, between the verses we've been reading, Paul is also saying, did you know it's a perfectly legitimate option for you never to seek to be married? And in the day that Paul said this, this is the most countercultural statement ever because there was no such thing as individual honor in the traditional Near Eastern society. You were defined and valued because you were married and had kids. And so for him to come out and say, it's a perfectly legit option for you to seek never to be married would have been considered ridiculous in his day. A countercultural statement of note. In fact, Stanley Hauervas says this, one of the clearest differences uh, between Christianity and other religions was Christianity's idea of singleness as a way of life for its followers. Paul and Jesus both say some people will choose not to be married, and that's a good thing. So if you didn't know, this is a countercultural statement then, and even in some ways today, because we look to romance to make us feel fulfilled, that we have other half, is kind of a language that gives our hearts away, that we actually are incomplete without someone coming and meeting us there. This is not a true thing. And if you are single in this place, either because you want to be married one day or have been divorced or have been widowed, you need to understand that it's not that your purpose in life and that your living out of God's purposes are shortened or less because you are single. If that was true, then Jesus, it doesn't make any sense that he was a single man, that Paul was a single man, that the only person we know that was married out of the disciples was Peter. The church was pushed forward by people that were held up as standards, but they were single. And so if you're in this place and you think you passed your sell-by date because you're no longer married or your life purposes will arrive when you get married, that's a lie from Satan. God wants you to know that your life of purpose is all about when you know Jesus. The life that's with Jesus is the life that's fulfilled with purpose. And you can be lonely whether you're married, whether you're single. The only thing that makes you not lonely is having the hole in your heart filled by Jesus. A spouse cannot complete you, and having a, a spouse that was in the past doesn't make you past your sell-by date. Jesus wants you to know, if you're single, that he loves the fact that you're single. He wants to love you in it, and he wants you to make, the, he wants you to make him your be-all and your end-all. Now, we're still going to get a little bit more to the other stuff of marriage as well. But there's this uh, cultural anthropologist in America. His name is Ernest Becker. He wrote this about this piece about the death of death, the denial of death. And he said this, and I hope that this rings true for you as you read this. We're the first society, Western society, that has a widespread belief that there's no ultimate future. Remember, we're talking about hope. As a result, there's never been a society that's put so much emphasis on romance, finding your one true love. We still need to know that our life matters in the grand scheme of things. We still want to merge ourselves to some higher meaning of trust and gratitude. This, by the way, is a secular scholar, and he concludes this. But if we no longer have God, how do we do this? One of the first ways that occurred to modern person was the romantic solution. The self-glorification that human beings need in our innermost being, we now look for not in God, but we look for a love partner. 
What is it that we want to elevate the love partner to this position? We want to be rid of our faults. We want to be rid of our feelings of nothingness. We want to be justified and know that our existence has not been in vain. We want redemption and nothing less. So one thing that I hope you picked up there is the whole reason why people are looking for romance to fill their life. It's because they have no eternal hope. That was Ernest Becker, a secular scholar's conclusion. And so people are trying to look for a flawed human being to fill themselves. But the countercultural piece of medicine that defies cultural society of old and defies our culture is that, by the way, you will never find what you're looking for in another person. You cannot be completed by a spouse. You have to be completed by a savior because you were made for something so great that no spouse could ever fill what you are looking for. And even secular scholars are cottoning onto this. And the Bible's view is off the charts that our hope is found in the one who will never let us down. The one that our hearts were made for. The one who knit us together in our mother's womb is the one who is our ultimate love. And he's the one that fulfills us. So the Bible has a very countercultural and a very high view of singleness. But guess what? The Bible also has a very countercultural and a very high view of marriage. So let's take a look at God's countercultural view of marriage. We've already understood that it's not that a spouse can complete you or fulfill you. In fact, marriage is a, is a thing of saying, I'm about to serve you with my whole life. It's not about self-gratification. It's about giving. Genesis 2.24 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, we could preach about marriage for five sermons, but I just want to highlight two quick things about marriage. And the first thing is this, that marriage is a covenant. Now, this is a countercultural thing. The words hold fast, when you look at that in Genesis and even when it's quoted in the New Testament, it's quoted as the word proskalao, which means to be glued to your wife, which is a good excuse if you have the physical touch as your top love language, that you feel a part of my body must touch you at all times because I'm trying to be scripturally accurate. It must be glued to my wife. But the true meaning of this is that you have to be glued in a permanent way like a covenant to your wife. And it's a profound thing because in our society, people don't believe marriage is a covenant. People believe marriage is a contract. Contracts are exchanging of, of terms under terms and conditions. You keep your side, I'll keep mine. That's why people say things like marriage is the government getting involved with your relationship. That's why people say things like, I don't need a piece of paper to prove that I love you. Because they are looking at marriage as a contract. But God is looking at marriage. And by the way, he defines marriage properly because he invented marriage. He's the one who said, no, it's not a contract. It's a covenant. And in this covenant, it's not appropriate that you keep your side, I keep mine. A covenant is between you and God with witnesses and you and your spouse where you say, I choose every day to get up and to love you. No matter how I feel, I choose to serve you. I choose to be loyal to you. This is my promise. This is my vow. I covenant with you to be with you forever and for always and to love you to the end of days. I will be gentle to you. I will be kind to you. How can you put such things in a contract? They do not belong, but they belong in a covenant. And a covenant is what marriage actually is. Secondly, Genesis 2.24 says, Therefore man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. If we take a look at that one flesh, we get this other revelation that's also countercultural, that marriage is deep 
oneness, okay? Couldn't even find a good word. It's, we don't even have the vocab to cope with the biblical concepts of marriage. It's deep oneness. It's not two people that uh, live their own lives, but they happen to live under the same roof. It is something far more profound that in fact two become one flesh. And when we say flesh, we talk about two become one person. When God said, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, he didn't say, I'm gonna pour out my spirit on skin tissue. He was saying, I'm gonna pour out my spirit on people. So this word flesh means two will become one person. There's a deep oneness in marriage. And I could go on about this for a long time, so could Carol over there. But all I will say for now is that because you have made a covenant to say, I will love you all of my life. I choose that life to love you, no matter how you might be behaving. It's my covenant that I will love you. It allows the walls to come down. It allows you to be yourself truly. It allows you to be vulnerable. It allows you to say, this is all of who I am. And all of who I am, I give to you. And we can lay down all of our independence willingly at the altar and say, I'm no longer about my own self, but now I live for you and we are gonna become one. There's a deep oneness, so much so that when we do the exchanging of rings at a wedding ceremony, like Vorno or myself or whatever, we half, the, the spouse half puts, the soon to be spouse, half puts the ring on the finger like this and we say, repeat after me. I give you this ring as a sign of our marriage. And with my body, I honor you. And all that I am, I give to you. And all that I have, I share with you within the love of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we see in that that there's something very countercultural there, that we're saying, I am wanting to share all of myself with you. And in that context, it's appropriate to say, I also honor you with my body as well as everything else, which is just the context that I wanted to get across before I go into heading number two, which is that God has a very countercultural view of sex. Now, because I'm about to talk about this topic, just so we know, this is a fine thing to talk about in church, that God is the one who invented sex, that the Bible is full of talk about sex. One of the books of the Bible is just a description about people about to have sex, song of songs. God didn't blush when he made sex. And so if you feel uncomfortable in church talking about sex, you need to know it's our God who invented the thing. And the Bible's full of it, so we best be leading the front in talking about sex. Now, the countercultural view or the world's view of sex, let's take a look at that. Let's toggle over to that side before we see what God actually has to say. Because the world has hijacked the view of sex that God has intended. And the first kind of cultural view that people have is that sex is basically just appetite. This view is very prevalent. You will hear people express the fact that sex is basically just an appetite, like something that they have to gratify, a craving. Like when you crave food, you have to chow, and then by the same logic, when I want to have sex, I have sex, it's nothing more than a gratifying of my desires. In fact, Delaney Jane, in her song in 2020 called Just Sex, she said, let's not think about what's next, it's just sex. We do it so well, and it's not that complicated. So that's a big worldview that we are faced with. It's not complicated, it's not profound, it's literally just an appetite, it's just sex. Under this worldview, it leads people down the excuse train of saying, well, I just have a very large sexual appetite. 
And if it's an appetite, there's a large buffet of options. I need to have sex with a whole host of different partners in order to gratify this desire because I am just such a, such a, a sexual being. And this kind of thing is a contradiction because remember, we're saying sex is appetite. Do you hear people say, you know what, deep down inside, I'm just a food being. I just really am. We don't hear people say that, but yet we are, are happy to say sex is an appetite. When we know food is very fundamental for us surviving, and sex is much more intricate to our identity. So we know that this falls flat. Nonetheless, we have people taking this view that sex is nothing more than just satisfying an appetite. Second worldview I want to take a look at is sex as dirty. The idea that sex is naughty, it's dirty, it's even called nicknamed doing the dirty. This view might come from the fact that uh, you have parents that were uncomfortable talking about this. This might come from uh, the fact that you might be have been exposed to sex from a young age as something dirty. There might even be some perverse stuff you're exposed to as a young girl, young boy. It might be because you believe the onslaught of the media that basically just portrays sex as something dirty. And we're going con to contradict all of that in a moment. But just where does this path lead? It can either lead to us ourselves being prudish about sex, where we say sex is dirty, don't talk about it, preferably don't have it, unless you have to have a child and then it's allowed for just a bit, but then cease, cease, because it's dirty, right? Prudish. The opposite view is perversion. Yeah, sex is dirty, and that's why I like it. The more twisted, the better. So we can go down one of these paths. So it's really important that we double-click on the sex is dirty and make sure we're not with the world on this view. But actually, let's take a look at God's view of sex. Let's major there. Because God's view of sex is much more beautiful than everything I've just described. The first thing we need to know about sex in God's design is that sex is giving your whole self in marriage. So the original design in Genesis... God says the two shall become one flesh. We've read it many, many times. And as people have contemplated, what does this mean, that the two become one? And we understand that sex is actually part of what this verse is talking about. Anglican theologian Anthony Thistleton, he summarizes this teaching by saying, Sex is self-commitment, which deeply involves the entire person, not merely body parts. Sex is meant by God to be the full giving of one's entire self, to the one whom you belong. Truth. Another true uh, biblical scholar, a Scottish biblical scholar, F.F. F. Bruce, trying to understand this one flesh dynamic that sex creates. He says, God insists it's an act, that talking about sex, that by its very nature engages the entire person and in a unique mode of self-disclosure or self-giving and self-commitment. So if sex is saying, I'm going to lay bare all of myself to you. We understand that it's not dirty, and we understand that it's far more profound than an appetite. In fact, we understand then, as these Bible scholars have said, it involves the entire person, not just body parts. It's a declaration, in fact, that you say, I belong to you. All of me belongs to all of you, including my body. So don't believe what you see on Netflix or what you hear in songs because God invented sex. And his summary is something far more profound. And because this is a self-disclosure or a giving of your entire self, 
That is why you can't have physical oneness with someone until you have whole life oneness with somebody. That is why you have this physical act of sex as a confirmation, as a consummation of actually giving your entire self to somebody in marriage. That's why you can't be physically naked with someone until you're emotionally naked with someone, financially naked with someone, socially naked with someone, legally naked with someone. You have to be naked in every other way if you're going to be naked in this way. Because that's God's design. You know that God is not a killjoy for saying, don't have sex outside of marriage. But he's thinking about your joy when he says, don't have sex outside of marriage. Because he's thinking about how you can have the most out of this gift that he's given to you. So it's appropriate within the context of marriage to say, I share everything with you. And even with my body, I honor you. It's a giving of your whole self. Second thing about sex is sex is like covenant glue. Many have used this analogy. It's like glue that brings your covenant of your marriage together. This is not just skin on skin. There's something that is a spiritual mystery that is at play in this act of sex. It is not just physical. There's something profound that is happening. And this profound thing that's happening is God is wanting to bring you as a married couple together in a beautiful way. And this is meant for you to have a fresh covenant until for decades that you have sex, not just because of cravings, but you have sex because you want your marriage to be strong and you want to glue yourself together. It's the reason why men frequent the same prostitute over and over, because it's not just sex. There's no such thing as casual sex. That's the reason why we can't forget our lovers. There's something far more profound that happens in sex than just skin on skin. This is a glue that has glued people together. It's a powerful thing. In fact, even scholars, uh, scientific scholars have arrived at this conclusion. These guys were doing an effect on how casual sex is affecting young children. Not that children were having sex. We're talking about uh, actually generations after casual sex. This is some stuff they had to say. They, They note in part of the study that sexual responses release oxytocin in females, vasopressin, I can't even pronounce that, Uh, in males, which are bonding chemicals. But this was the conclusion about sleeping around. Quote, we are learning that these bonding chemicals short circuit and cause permanent damage, putting people in danger of being unable to form proper bonds with romantic or parental relationships. The study concludes that sharing your body with multiple sexual partners can actually lead to an inability to bond or have proper relationships. Some of you, as I read this, the 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 condemnation might sit heavy on your heart, thinking, but I've been in that place. Is there any hope for me? Am I doomed to never have any proper relationships? Well, the good news is that for those of us who turn to Jesus and who say, this lifestyle I shall not follow, but I choose to follow Jesus, turn away from this behavior and come to him, that our God is a redeemer. That means he makes all things new. That means that no one is a hopeless case. That means that no matter where we've been or what we've done, that God can make new everything, including giving us a new heart. How can he not give us new chemicals for forming bonds? Our God is a redeemer and he would say to you, turn away from this lifestyle and come and follow me because God will make that new. God's great. He is so great. So it's an incredible thing that God has made sex as this profound covenant glue in marriage. 
And that is why the devil wants to get you into bed before you're married and keep you out of bed once you are married. Because both of those things will have good outcomes for him. This brings us to point three, that sex is actually something thrilling that God has given in the context of marriage. In fact, 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says some more funny stuff. He says, firstly, uh, this isn't the funny part, uh, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife for her husband. The wife doesn't have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband doesn't have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Listen to this in verse 5. Do not deprive one another of sex, men, sir. Except, perhaps, exception clause, by agreement for a limited time. Why? So that you can devote yourself to prayer, but then come together again quickly so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So I don't know if the married couples heard that command in their heart. Thus saith the Lord, go have lots of sex. Because Satan is waiting for an opportunity that your bonding chemicals, the covenant glue God has given you is not strong. He is waiting for an opportunity to say, these oaks haven't had sex in a while. Here, I'm going to throw a spanner in the works. Paul is literally saying Satan is waiting for an opportunity for you to stop having sex. So don't make small excuses play its part in your marriage not having sex. Sex is a spiritual thing as well as a physical thing. So this is also a very countercultural thing that the body belongs to the husband of, you know, you got that whole reversal thing going on. Very countercultural. But the other countercultural thing is this this is a thrilling way that God chose to do this. And it is enjoyable, it's wonderful. But it's not actually for your own gratification that you have sex. And this is a countercultural thing. Your motive should be I have an opportunity to thrill and to give ecstasy to my spouse. The world sees sex as an exchange where I get to get what I want. God wants to reinvent the wheel on that and turn your mind around to say, no, I get to thrill my spouse. And that is a way to serve them. And it's a thrilling way that we get to live this out together. And the fourth thing uh, is that sex is for procreation in marriage. Procreation, making kids. Now, it's not all the scriptures in, in the Bible, not, many of them exist without even mentioning kids, but they mention sex, which means that sex isn't only for creating kids. But guess what? This is actually one of the fun things that God had in mind. He could have made sex an unpleasant thing for us to have and that we would have to do it just to make kids, but it wouldn't be nice. Just like in the animal kingdom. Very few animals actually have sex for pleasure at all. And most of them experience severe pain in order to do that. Go and Google lions mating. Go find out what transpires with their bodies and you will understand why they clap each other with their paws and why they bite each other when they are mating. It's a painful thing. But God decided, because he's a good God, that this is going to be a thrilling way for you to create new life. Now, I'm still trying to understand this whole spiel, being a dad expecting whatever. I'm trying to wrap my head around this. But this is my musings as far as I can take it. That God is a creator, but somehow he chooses for us to kind of somewhat participate in this ministry of creation. That somehow 
when the Trinity, when in their perfect love for one another, they're described as in one another, they're in such perfect unity, out of the joy that they have together, they created everything that was. And somehow God is allowing for husband and wife in their union to create out of the abundance of the love that they have for one another. That in somehow in the same way that when the Holy Spirit, the Son and the Father said, let us create in our image, even us as a married couples get to kind of create a little one that's kind of in our image. There's something really awesome about being able to co-labor in the ministry of creation. And as we look at all of this that the Bible says about sex, we get so far away from sex is dirty. We get so far away from the fact that sex is just an appetite. It's something far more profound. And so my summary is that sex is a profound giving of your entire self to your spouse a thrilling way to glue your covenant together, and it's even a vehicle for new life. So let's not dabble in the shallow with what the world says about sex. Let's go for the deepness of what God really says about sex. But now we put these two facts together. On the one hand, Bible has a high view of sex, but on the other hand, God says you can live a perfectly fulfilled life without it. You don't even need to be married. And that brings us to heading number three, that there is hope for singles for marriage and for sex. As we look with an eternal perspective, we look at this passage about sex in 1 Corinthians 7, and it says this. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. Thankfully, the verse doesn't end there. Verse 30. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as if they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with the world. For the present form of the world is passing away. God is saying that we live in this in-between phase where Jesus has come, he started the new era of the Spirit, but he is coming again. Some of the era of sin reigns, but some of the blessings of the future kingdom reign now too. But there is coming a day when the present world in all of its forms will pass away. And as it does that, by the way, part of what doesn't make it over the edge to the new heavens and new earth is your marriage. That is not something that happens that side, but we have it surpassed by something far more glorious, the wedding supper of the Lamb, the marriage between Jesus and the church. And so we see something that Paul is explaining here, that you guys have put a lot of stake on the temporary. That's why you guys have the wrong view of marriage. That's why you guys have the wrong view of singleness, because you're only looking through the lens of the temporary satisfaction. But you need to look at the future hope that God has for you. It will realign everything. And so we need this revelation that Jesus is the ultimate lover. Now, Ephesians 5 even says this, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. You know that verse off by heart. But then it says, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that all of that refers to Christ and the church. I.e., it symbolizes marriage and sex symbolizes something greater, which is about Christ and the church. I.e., it's a signpost to something ultimately more magnificent, which is about Jesus and his marriage to the church. I want to take you to John 4, the woman at the well. She needed this revelation. She's there, and Jesus says, I want to offer you living water. She says, sir, I will have that water. He says, okay, go fetch your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. He says, you're right, you've had five, 
and the one that you're living with is not your husband. So why did Jesus, when he was offering her eternal satisfaction and living water, why did he start to bring up her romantic life? It was because this woman had bought the lie that romance, just like Ernest Becker warned us against, is going to make me whole. This was a woman who thought, if I have another half, my life will lose the whole of loneliness that I have, and that somehow I'll be made all right. But Jesus was offering her something far more magnificent. He was saying, I want you to make me your ultimate lover. I want you to come to me and not have this water that's brackish, filtered down, pathetic of other people. What you really need for your life to be whole is me. I'm the one that you need. And if you're in that place where you're looking for someone to fulfill your longings of your heart, if you do get married, you're going to crush that person because they're going to be your functional savior. And if you're married and you don't have Jesus as your ultimate hope, uh, sorry, if you're single and you don't have Jesus as your ultimate hope, you might crush them, you might live lonely and unfulfilled, but if you are married, we live in a lie, thinking we can extract from our spouse what only Jesus can provide. It's one of the reasons marriage is so broken, is because marriage is designed to be something where two people who both say, but Jesus is my ultimate lover, come together shoulder to shoulder, not needing one another. And Jesus is telling this woman, I want you to come to me. He, in fact, has this marriage proposal for her. And so as we come to this, we see that human sexuality, we see that marriage is just a dim reflection of something far greater that Jesus is actually offering to every single one of us. And that, in fact, all that, the highest pleasure we know in this reality is sex, and it still is a dim reflection of the ecstasy that it will be at the end of this age to be with Jesus, our Savior that the highest pleasure we know is still nothing but a dim reflection, and that Jesus is the ultimate, and that marriage and sex is just something that points towards something that is so great. And so as we come to the end of this series, God has made us male and female. He's designed us that way. It's also important to know God designed us for Him, and that unless we make Him our ultimate, there's no way that we will be satisfied. He is the living water. So if you're going to get married, get married, but not out of social obligation, not because you think they'll make you whole, but because Jesus has made you whole, has made them whole, and together you say, I want to live out that covenant, but I know Jesus is my ultimate. I don't know where you find yourself today because many things might have convicted you in this sermon, stirred up your heart. I don't know if you're in the place where you're in a marriage, but the marriage is struggling. There's hope for you. I don't know if you're in the place where you want to be married, you feel like it's never going to happen, there's a hope that's for you. I don't know if you're in the place where you were married, it was wonderful, now you live in the widowed life or the divorced life, there's hope for you. I don't know if you're the person that says, I don't know, I've got multiple sexual partners, that's the only way I know how to get by. There's hope for you. That for all of us, I hope we see ourselves as the woman that's at the well, and that Jesus has come with a proposal to you and a proposal to me today to say, I'm the one that you've been looking for, and I'm the one that you've been waiting for. The metal band disciple has this ballad, beautiful. They say, I'm the one that you've been looking for. I'm the one that you've been waiting for. I've had my eyes on you ever since you were born. I will love you after the rain falls down. I'll love you after the sun goes out. I'll have my eyes on you after the world is no more. That when the world passes away, 
Jesus will still have his eye on you and he will still love you. He's the one that you've been looking for. He's the ultimate lover. And so hopefully as you're sitting there, you're thinking about the fact that no matter what I need, being single or being married, the one thing that we all need is Jesus to be made our ultimate. And he's a God that won't just love us after the world is no more. He's a God that will love us and come after us when we're at our most unlovable. That at the best of our marriage days, when we're playing our best spouse cards, we are nothing compared to Jesus. He's the one who came and loved us. Before you spoke a word, he was singing over you. That he's been so, so kind to you. That before you took a breath, he breathed his life into you. And when you felt no worth, he paid it all for you. This is the overwhelming, the never-ending, the reckless love of God. The one who chases you down and fights till you're found and leaves the 99. Something that we couldn't earn, something that we couldn't deserve, but still Jesus is the one that gives himself away. A one-sided covenant, a covenant that you weren't even born. And he said, I don't, it doesn't matter what your response is, this is what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna lay down my life for you because I so love you. And I hope that that is something that wrecks you in your heart. So will you stand with me and let's pray. Father, as we look to this magnificent truth, male and female, we understand that it's all been pointing in one direction. And that is, it's about you. It's always been about you, Jesus. And that you're the one that we look to. And that all the Bible speaks about you. Marriage speaks about you. Sex speaks about you. And so today we want to come to the main thing. We don't, we don't want to be busy with extraneous stuff. We want to be busy with the main thing. And the main thing is that, Jesus, we come to you and we hear your proposal. You say, come, I'm the living water that you've been waiting for. I'm the one who wants to make your heart whole. And today in response to that, we want to say that we want to give all of ourself to you because you gave all of yourself to us. And so, Lord, would you take our hearts wherever they might be in the state that they are, Lord, we want to be for you. We want to be for your purposes. We thank you for the love that you lavished upon us and for the death that you graciously died for us. And we want to live a life that remembers and is grateful for that fact. We ponder your never-ending, your reckless love that you lavished upon us. And we say, Lord, thank you. Great are you, Jesus. We give ourselves to you. Amen. Let us sing.